You are now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Welcome to Sound of Sanity. It's another glorious episode coming to you from Top Secret Studio B. I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host. We've got Jake, the pastor who's a master of sanity, right there. Hey, what's up? You want to introduce the other guy, Jake? His name's Ben, and he's right there. Wow. You feel inspired. Nope, uh, Ben's not a loser. He's a wonderful gentleman. Guys, we are here today to talk about books we've been reading. This is our Sanity Shelves episode of the month. And so, Ben. Hey. What books you been reading? Oh, let's see, Nathan. I have, I finished, since we last talked, I finished The Black Swan Mm -hmm. by Taleb. Don't have a lot else to say about it. Overall effect is some really helpful handles, and it leaves you with the lasting idea that we really stink at predicting important things that are coming, aka black swans, things that disrupt any number of ecosystems in our lives, like the financial world or our personal lives or whatever. It's a good book. I recommend it. I think Jake will have more to say, but I talked about it before. I started, I started a book. That I'm nowhere near finishing. Ooh. Yeah. Paul Johnson's History of the American People, which is a famous book by a British historian who's a big fan of America. I don't even know if he's still alive. He wrote a bunch of famous... I want to say he's dead. It it probably is. I just know... I've known about this book for a long time. I've owned it on Audible for years, and I knew it was supposed to be awesome. I think it won the Pulitzer or something. I don't remember, but it's, it's one of those books you look at, like Anna Karenina, and you're like, I know... That's good or whatever, but it's this giant tome. And who has time for that? And then you start reading Anna Karenina, and you're like, how could I not have time for this? This is awesome. So that's how I feel so far. It's just awesome. It's like reading a really fun novel about the history of America. I'm still in early days, 1700s, 1600s, 17th century, reading about or listening about the pilgrims and the Puritans and all kinds of colonists and political and religious tensions, and the guy is just a really fun storyteller. Brings all these interesting people to life. I don't know. It's great. Sounds like you do know. It's great. Yeah, you should listen to it or find it or something. Paul Um, Johnson, he wrote that book, Intellectuals, about how everybody liked to have sex with people. (laughs) Yep, and therefore, they can't be trusted. And therefore, they can't be trusted. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't matter who they are. (laughs) A perfectly fair and accurate summary of Paul Johnson Uh, in his book, Intellectuals. Intellectuals. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, there you go. Yeah. Jake, you ever read any Paul Johnson? No, I hard passed on Intellectuals, which is the one that has always been recommended to me. I'm sure it's great. I'm sure it's great, too. But it is one of those books that gets recommended a lot. Gets recommended a lot by people, in my opinion, who generally don't like to read or engage with ideas outside of their comfort zone. They just want a reason to be dismissive of them in general, which is not to say that the principle, and which is why the book is probably great. It's just why I've avoided the book. It's worth knowing that Tolstoy left his wife and ended up in a dying in a cold and alone on a train station, all it's that stuff. It's worth knowing all the things about Freud or any number of people. 
that have shaped that shaped the 20th century and how much their ideologies were driven by or at least synchronized with their perversity. And, and sometimes it's worth being very dismissive of those people because of those things. Sometimes yeah, it's not. Or, yeah, or to at least understand the whole picture. Everybody wants to whitewash Karl Marx. He was a horrible person. So was Sigmund Freud. So was Carl Jung. So were lots of people. It's also true that great men who do great things. I mean, Ben Solzer's sitting right here. Great men who do great things have terrible flaws. Ben, it's mm. his gimp leg. It's a terrible flaw. It's a terrible flaw. Other turns, than that, turns a lot of people off. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> gross. It's always oozing pus. But yeah, if if you're like oh, such and such a person had an affair and then committed adultery and then murdered the husband of the woman he committed adultery with, so we should be dismissive of everything he's ever written. Right. Well, he actually. Well, no, not going to get into it. <laughs> Ah, Twitter, Twitter likes to have this conversation every, every three months. Every three months about whether David raped Bathsheba, but uh, you know, I mean, he didn't. That's the answer to that. But also, let's not talk about it. Paul yes. Johnson. Yes, thank you. Yes. You guys tagged on very helpfully. Make Paul Johnson <laughs> make people want to read him. I appreciate that. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, it's what's another example of this? <laughs> Oh, that applause sound effect really goes on for longer than you want it to. I don't know. There's been any number of books that I've resented because they're used by the wrong people in the wrong ways. And then I get to them and they're fantastic. So Paul Johnson, I think, actually, I would love if I read him. And I actually think I have read a little bit of Intellectuals and it's great. It's just that he does get used sometimes by dismissive people to be dismissive towards history, towards intellectuals, towards people that just want to level the playing field simply because he wrote a, hist- a, a realistic appraisal of certain people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen him get used very annoyingly again and again and again. And so that's my association with him. I'm not thinking of another example like that, but there's lots of people who are absolutely fantastic. And then you see them be used in an annoying way. I mean, yeah. the reverse of this They're is hammered that, you right. know, the Wachowskis yeah. are like, yeah. we accidentally created the, Red pill movement. We're trans <laughs> dudes that aren't red pill at all. <laughs> that's like the uh, that's the other team, but it's like an example of that kind of thing where it's like right. we did not mean for this to be used this way. Paul Johnson is obviously a hyper erudite right. nerd who reads mm-hmm. everything. So I don't know how much of his life he spent reading primary source documents just to get less than a hundred pages into this book, but right a lot. So, now what are you learning about the pilgrims? That what's his angle on it, or what's interesting about it? Because man, I don't, I'm not interested. My my real lack of interest in that book is just I don't want another American history. Well, what's interesting is just like what's always interesting going back to the history of America. I think, and I talked about this with the book Revolutionary Summer by Ellis Joseph Ellis, which is a pretty different flavor of historical book in a very narrow account. Right. Just the summer of 1776, that's all. But it's just that everything is a mess, and that these guys, all the people who came and started settling America had very different ideas, and it makes you, the effect it's had on me is to make me want to go read some of their journals, because I want to know, wait, who are these guys? Are these guys Puritans? Are these my people? Are they like someone we were just alluding to in the Bible? Pretty awesome, but Whoa, boy, their flaws are massive. Is it just that? Mm. Is it something else? Paul Johnson's not a believer or anything. 
he just likes America a lot. And you can feel his enthusiasm for it. Man, this is really cool. This country is like nothing else. I'm a big fan. But at the same time, he's not interested in being in writing a hagiography of any particular people. Right. It's just like, yeah, this guy was charismatic and driving and awesome, exerted a massive influence. And he was unpopular for these reasons. And he seemed to have failed in these ways. He left this influence. It's amazing he was able to pull that off. I don't know I don't know what to say about it or how to summarize it other than that, but every colony that comes and establishes something that's now a state has a very different flavor, like Roger Williams. Roger Williams is one of the original pilgrim colonists, but he's got some radical ideas that, wait a minute, we should actually love the Indians and know their language. And again, this is all simplified from the perspective of a secular historian. So right. I don't know what was actually going on, but he has radical ideas about that and religious tolerance, and eventually... He gets, he gets driven out of, uh, sorry, I'm still behind in my grasp of who was where, of wherever he was, and he goes to found Rhode Island. And you've just got all of these little windows into so many things, and all these people are just, it's just a weird landscape of all these religious and political refugees. They're all, I don't know, it, the comparison to Anna Karenina or something like that is apt, mm -hmm. because you just, what this guy's going to do is give you little windows into, each of these people was complicated and reacting in a complicated way to the politics and religion of their time. And each of their stories, there could be a book about it. But I'm just going to give you, like, a couple pages. But enough in the couple pages, like, summarized and con contextualized to make you want to learn more. As you talk, I'm realizing what I don't like in history books and what I do like in history books, and this very much sounds like what I do like. I don't like, obviously, just hagiography, just the kind of stuff that we were given as kids, the... George Washington was the greatest man that ever lived stuff, which probably doesn't exist in mainstream schools anymore. But all that stuff was super boring. It never made you curious. Right. But then there's the stuff that's a reaction against the great mm -hmm. man theory of history, which is just, here's all the social movements and here's all the neurotic reasons why this guy was actually really complex. And that can be interesting. But what I often find with those books is that they have the opposite problem where I'm like, they just want oh, to deconstruct okay, everything. You've deconstructed Martin Luther's life and his times and who he, but you haven't actually given me a sense of what did make him charismatic. This guy changed the world and how did he do it? There must've been something special about him. Like I know everybody's got their sins and flaws and neuroses and social things that are blah, 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 blah. But you know, George Washington must've been some kind of a guy and you want a sense of that. I mean, I think this is a lame old reference now, but I think that's what people actually, one of the things they responded to about Hamilton is that it had some of that complexity, but it was also like, we love Hamilton. He's great. And whether you agree with that <laughs> or not, none of us in this room particularly agree with that, but it does give verve to that show. The fact that they actually do want to portray these guys as somewhat the superheroes of our founding mm -hmm. myth without with their flaws, yeah, with, with their, their flaws, flaws yeah. with their flaws. which is the thing that like, it's the thing that kept me away from Hamilton. It's yeah. like, all right, we're going to lionize this guy. This guy was, mm -hmm. he was bad news for all kinds of reasons, not just his politics. Right. And I had loved him before, before I had my politics reshaped, I think, but more or less by scripture. Hmm. So I had a kind of a personal history with Hamilton and read the Federalist Papers and all that stuff back in the day. But yeah, it was what I responded to in the musical was, hey, Whatever you want to say about him, you don't have to like or agree with anything, but he was a special guy. Right. He mattered and he was complex 
it and you mattered. Want, you do. And he made a difference. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it, one way or another, he was a big time player. And he is, we are downstream of him and we have inherited in many ways his world. We're in the middle of a banking crisis. Yep. <laughs> and thanks, Alexander Hamilton. Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you don't have to be happy about the banking crisis or the Federal Reserve for central banking or anything like that or the ways that we've handled credit or built up the American dollar, any of it to say, well, Alexander Hamilton, kind of important. Right. And the trajectory of America. Well, and as much as he probably right. didn't feel like he was anything special because nobody does, you do want when you engage with history to have that sense of, okay, these were the people that were important. So I'm reading about like Martin Luther's in a back room plotting to change the world right now. This is Washington. Like these are the guys. As much as you want to be done with your storybook versions of history from you when you were a kid. You want to be in the room where it happened. You do want to be in the room where it happened. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so I have picked up any number of history books. I'm thinking of I'm thinking of one of by Martin Luther that's pretty popular that some people will have read. I'm thinking of the one that I read, a random one. I, I was into the movie Braveheart as a kid, so I picked up a biography of William Wallace. And it was just like, William Wallace was a neurotic barbarian <laughs> who had nothing interesting about him except for that he was in the right time in the right place. So let's spend hundreds of pages talking about that time and that place. And I was like, okay, sure. Braveheart's pretty obviously a fairy tale. The princess is going to come and sleep with him and all this stuff. But there must have been something about William Wallace that made him William Wallace. A lot of guys wanted to be William Wallace. A lot of guys thought they were William Wallace. Only William Wallace was William Wallace. Like, there there must have been something. Yeah. Fun fact, I had a friend in college who was a direct descendant of William Wallace. There you go. Nice. Was his name Wallace? Her name. Her name? Sarah Wallace was her name. Girls can be descendants of William Wallace, too. <laughs> yeah, Sarah Wallace. And the fun thing was, and she had the most vibrant, amazing curly red hair. Nice. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, she was, she's a beautiful woman with her curly red hair and everybody would make the joke and it was like it was always actually yes and no i'm not joking that's amazing it's pretty fun did that's, you did you have did you have a braveheart take not that i remember i f- fun fact i know uh, well my cousins-in-law i have cousins-in-law right who are direct descendants of roger williams and they are still roger williams i forget where they are in the lineage like the 10th or mm-hmm. the 11th or the 14th so, founder of Rhode Island. There you go. I know them. I got some guy that raped somebody in the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very good, Nathan. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> For just playing ancestor baseball oh, cards, goodness. I don't have anything to trade. Well, kind of like in Hamilton where these guys are like, manifest destiny, man. Like, we're on the stage of history. Same thing with the pilgrims, mm-hmm. famously. But it's true, and that makes them interesting because, obviously, on the one hand, it's, it's a pretension. But on the other hand, it was. Mm-hmm. You were on the stage of world history. Right. So you're a jerk, and you're proud for thinking that. Also, you seem to be correct. Right. Well, th- I'm, obviously, there's many people who claimed to their followers that they were on the stage of world history, and then they were wrong. I mean, that's, that, right. that's all an L. Ron Hubbard is. But uh, uh-huh. to take a silly example or an extreme example. Mm-hmm. But I do think part of the way that a Steve Jobs or a Martin Luther works is by inspiring you that hey we're on the world stage we're about to change history and so i think that those people actually do have that feeling they actually sometimes i see these i read these histories and it's it has this sort of neurotic sense of well they didn't really know what they were doing or they they couldn't have known that it would work and it's like i I get that but 
there were they some of them at least had to have been motivated by some kind of a zeal for something that was larger than them. Oh so. yeah. Like the belief that America was a new kind of promised land and God was covenanting with the pilgrims to create something, start over. Mm-hmm. That was a thing. Yeah. So I also, I read a really short book yes. by Brian Manson, who's a Christian theologian found a while back. It's called Cultural Amnesia. Less than 50 pages. It takes an hour or less to read. I'd recommend it. You can pick it up for a few bucks on Amazon. And it's just a takedown of Radical Two Kingdoms Theology about the simplest handles I think I could imagine for taking it down. Maybe we have a listener who's like, what's Radical Two Kingdoms Theology? You know, Nathan, I bet we do. Well, it's the belief originating especially from Westminster Seminary in Escondido, California, from the professors, theologians there, that Christ's kingdom is simply spiritual. It's the church. And everything else that happens, marriage, politics, even family to some extent, but certainly everything like everything that's common to man, everything that's not specific to the church, like preaching and sacraments, that's like a that's a secular kingdom that's governed by mm, like the Noahic covenant and common grace. But what you don't want to do is confuse those two realms. So you don't want to bring like Christian principles to bear on politics. And you don't want to you just want to make sure that you keep Christ inside the church. Right. And the, because Christ is reigning inside the church. He's not exactly reigning outside the church. In in some way he is. But you don't want to you don't want to mix those up. <clears throat> so it's a pretty toxic, it's a pretty toxic brew. It's about anti-cultural transformation, right? In a strong sense, and um, it thinks that there's a realm of grace and there's a realm of nature, and they shouldn't mix. So this guy's little book just goes through and says, one, it's exegetically they rely on this argument from the covenant with Noah. Well, the covenant with Noah is what establishes the world that we have and the secular world that we have. And there's like common grace laws and natural law and stuff you can figure out. Like everyone thinks don't murder is a thing. So we don't need, we're not going to bring that to bear from a Christian perspective, just from the perspective that everyone already thinks that. And that's really dumb. (laughs) (laughs) It's really dumb. And so he goes, he just, he does a brief exegetical takedown, a brief theological takedown, and then does a case study. And he's like, okay, what do they say about marriage? (laughs) And he says, basically, they're not able to account for the fact that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Marriage, but marriage is a universal institution. It doesn't just belong inside the church, it belongs to mankind. But then you can't say that it's always a picture of Christ in the church, because that would seem to bring it into the realm of the kingdom of Jesus, like the kingdom he actually rules over, has something to say about from his word. That's like a special revelation deal. But you can't mix those categories. And I don't know if I'm being clear in the way I'm saying it, but he's just like, yeah, they, they, can't, even, they can't even hold on to their principles they can't even represent marriage as the Bible represents it because that would confuse their own categories. It's a good little book. It's really short. It really is like an hour or less to read it. And it gives you a bunch of handles. So so I guess the upshot would be not that nature and grace are these weirdly separate realms, but that grace restores and perfects nature. That would be the, pop, the proper handle to think about stuff. The world is messed up by sin. Well, God's grace comes and it redeems and restores things like marriage, which belong to all mankind, but which Jesus restores. Same with all cultural institutions, however that works out. Right. So. Totally good book. What's it called again? Cultural Amnesia. Cultural Amnesia. By Brian Matson. Yeah. I think, so one, one more quick thing. One of the most interesting things he says is that these arguments, if you go and read these Escondido theologians, which you don't need to do, you don't need to do that, but he says, 
they rely on the common grace argument that neighbor already basically shares certain values. So don't bring Jesus out into the public square with your neighbor, so to speak. He already believes don't murder is wrong, which is hilarious. Right. Which is a hilarious argument because to the extent that in America we still have some shared morality, (laughs) which is disappearing, of course, at an alarming rate when it comes to sex and has already been gone when it comes to murder, the murder of little children. But to whatever extent we do, it's because we live in a society that is post-Christian, where Jesus brought... We live in a society... What did you say? Out. <laughs> I choked on myself. I was, I was going for a joker. We live in a society, but... Yeah, so I was going <laughs> to... But then my... The actual phlegm in my throat... It, it went too far. Up. Yeah, it went too far. Yeah, it went too far. Yeah. <laughs> this is an appropriate sound effect. That's why you fail. You're a loser. Loser. No, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> no. It's a little far. I just think Fl- people... in my throat. That's why I fail. There you I, get, I get that. A sad trombone. I accept that one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like while that doctrine or that idea may have been compelling, oh, as early as or as late as 20 years ago, it just becomes less and less convincing with it, every year. Yeah. I mean, I remember. It doesn't even feel like a threat anymore. Yeah. No, it's, it's it, just like, it how can anybody believe that and describes the world that we live in with any kind of accuracy? No, no, it doesn't. And I wouldn't recommend it because I feel like this thing is a threat. I'd recommend it just because it gives you a very quick ability to argue just to see what the Bible actually teaches, basically. Yeah. I mean, if you have to spend a lot of time thinking about Christian nationalism, all that kind of stuff, this sounds like a solid kind of. I would say so. And this is this, this guy I found because he. Did a couple of takedowns of Stephen Wolf's book on Christian. Well, I dare say this might do a... I was thinking this the whole time. I didn't know whether I was going to say it or not. It sounds like this book would do a good job of beginning to give you some threads to pull on as you think about that rather overrated book. I think so. Which has its own weird Two Kingdoms-y flavor to it, but we don't have to talk about that. Well, is that all your books? That's all. Let me recommend a short book for Christians, and maybe then we'll call this episode an episode and come back with, uh, I've got another book I want to talk about at length, and I assume Jake has them as well. I don't have anything to talk about at length. Well, I've got one. Cool. So, The Return of the Dragon, we actually had the author of this book, his name is Louis Ungut, reach out to us, and he sent me a review copy because he listened to another episode that we did on Psychonauts and or LSD, all that stuff. And so, Louis... <clears throat> Wrote the book on it. It's called The Return of the Dragon. The subtitle is The Shocking Way That Drugs and Religion Shape People and Societies. And basically the Hmm. premise of the book, as as it states in the byline, what if the spirits and entities people experience while on drugs like ayahuasca aren't just in their heads? What if changing brain chemistry can tune the mind into another dimension where real entities can be experienced? So he lays out the history of this stuff. We just did an episode about this, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But Lewis does a nice job of laying out the history of all this stuff, the way that it relates to pagan practices, and making a case that there is a real and dangerous and evil spiritual dimension to it, and that we should stay away from it. Lewis, in chatting with him, he said he wanted to reach a Joe Rogan crowd. So he starts out, he spends many chapters laying the groundwork and not just saying, drugs are bad. So Christians, if they read it, need to not be put off by that. But I think this is, as far as I know, is the best uh, little primer, which you said about 50 pages and you'll have some footing. 
That's nice. This is a very nice primer and all that stuff. If you've got men in your church that are pro ayahuasca, ayahuasca, pro psilocybin, yeah, pro. (laughs) This is a big thing. It's something that our churches are dealing with. We microdosing. We are living in a finding a shaman. Yep, Hmm. just like the seventies and just like the Victorian age before that. We are living in an era that feels unstable, and people always turn to weird places to try and access the transcendent. The occult always rears its ugly head when society feels more unstable for any number of reasons. And so the occult is big right now, and Mm. people like Joe Rogan, and for whatever, the interesting twist is that it's really big in the conservative semi-Christian or so-called Christian. Well, you have guys that have moved out of that world because they've had experiences or in part because they've had experiences with the demonic that have helped awaken them to spiritual realities. And that's led them to Christ or to some version of Christian faith or some version of religiosity. Right. And so it, you do find that sort of conservative strain. So somebody high profile person who's done this is Mike Cernovich. Mm -hmm who used to promote ayahuasca trips and things like that for self-discovery and things like that until he started to really question and grapple with the demonic aspect of it and converted to Orthodox Christianity. Right. So he is part of it being one of the more prominent voices in conservative America that a lot of Christians were already inclined to pay attention to. Mm. He's been a part of mediating part of that conversation for a really long time and is responsible for introducing people to it in a negative way. And now he warns people against it, but yeah. So yeah, he's like a a link between the Rogan crowd and the conservative Christian, Mm -hmm. right? And then there's a whole (coughs) world of people around that too. And there's a world of people that have followed similar trajectories to Cernovich who haven't reached the maturity to see that just because something bad was formative in your coming to Christ does not mean that that was a good thing in and of Mm -hmm. itself. Ayahuasca wakened me to spiritual realities and that drove me to Christ, therefore it's good. Well, that doesn't actually follow. Somebody who hits rock bottom as an alcoholic or who commits adultery and then is faced with their sin or has a death happen, there are all kinds of things that happen that are not intrinsically good that God uses to wake us up right. to spiritual realities or to the state of our souls. But anyhow, I'm just talking now. So, Well, the thing is, if you are anywhere in the circles that we are in or you have the kinds of congregations that we have or you are part of the kinds of congregations that we – like there are people in our presbytery, young men that attend churches that are into this stuff or would at least defend it. Um, it's cool. It's hip right now, and so it's worth knowing Hmm. a little something about, and I think this is... Well, and it's so... The other aspect that I think needs to be talked about is it also goes hand-in-hand with the anti-pharma movement, which is weird because it's still... It's pharmacaea, but the anybody who has looked at SSRIs or tried to come off of SSRIs or off of Adderall, anything like that, the drugs that we give our kids, the way we drug our kids... Or, or young women, or just as questioned anything about the pharmaceutical industry. Well, there's a whole body of research 
of people who are open to exploring herbal remedies and natural supplementation and the healing effects of psychedelics. Scott Adams talks about this sort of thing. He's adjacent to any number of conservative Christians, right? although he would very openly be neither. So there's that side of it too, as everything related to COVID has pushed people into the world of doing their own research on health and wellness and healing. There's a whole body of literature around psychedelics that's plays into it too, right. on that side. And so, you know, it's coming from all sides and people are experimenting with it. And young people are more open to all kinds of alternative ways of dealing with trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, trauma, if you've read any of, if you know how in vogue processing your your life through the lens of trauma is, Right adjacent to that is the use of psychedelics to deal Hmm. with trauma and to heal trauma Mm -hmm. and to explore your trauma. So there's just a whole, there's just, it's a big deal. No, and people write things that are very intriguing and appealing about it. The idea that you could stand outside of yourself and see the world with real perspective. There, there's a way to dress that up in really biblical language, actually. Which is what these, which is what people talk about. It's like, well, I'm finally forced to deal with my flaws my sin myself objectively like that's it like it's a scary place i have to go down into the abyss of who i really am as an out objective outsider and see myself in the world from a completely that's like the journey as it's presented and you are forced or taken along on that journey by your shaman or by the spirit guides right and that's also what's scary about it well Um, and lewis does a nice job of talking about this in the book What's scary, it's like any horror movie. You open certain doors and then you think you can close them. But some of the stories that people tell are, I saw the entity on drugs and then my roommate who hadn't done any drugs also saw the entity that night. It's pretty creepy stuff. (laughs) Well, and in these entities, you can have, there's a real body of evidence that says they are real entities. They have universal descriptions across cultures that have no contact. Johns Hopkins has done studies where they've introduced people to, and you can go read the studies, the Johns Hopkins studies about people independently describing the exact same style of entities. And there are multiple entities that are described too. And the people have different names for them, mechanical dwarves, and I forget what they all are. Probably you know because there's a Joker so, figure. A, it's not he's not a Joker, but like a there's a Hat Man. Yeah, there's. But yeah, I mean, if somebody is interested in this stuff, if you're too interested in this stuff, then just run. If you feel the allure of all this, then maybe don't even read this book. Um, but I do mm-hmm. want to give it a nice plug to this book because I think it will very quickly and simply mm-hmm. give you. It was. A, it's like it's a four-hour listen on one speed. So mm-hmm. he's going to outline the science, the philosophy. He's going to refer to the John Hopkins study, stuff like that, the theology, even. And so, cool. Yeah, this I is, just got it on Kindle. It's just is it'll it's it'll just be a nice way to get a quick download on it. Get your matrix mm-hmm. download, so now you can ride the bike of knowledge. Sheesh. Even you know I read. And talked about fingerprints of the gods mm-hmm. for fun a couple months ago. Graham Hancock's into this, oh, sure. this stuff, and this, so there's a third entry point if you're into like the whether for fun or because well, there's no other reason but fun. But you know, Graham Hancock, crypto archaeologist, crypto geologist, investigative reporter, who's like, it seems like there might have been a global flood 
and that sort of thing. If you've spent your whole life looking for that stuff, and then there's actually a concrete way that you can see something. You're spending your whole life looking for the transcendent, and then there's a pretty consistent doorway to the transcendent. I mean, there's three doorways to the transcendent that I know of. In terms, if you want to see entities, you got to do a ritual. You got to trigger sleep paralysis, which is no fun, or you do this. And so it's just like nobody wants to go down the route of actual satanic rituals. Sleep paralysis is no fun, and those entities are only bad. And so this is where everyone. This is the one that has the promise of right of good and bad entities together that you can interact with. And nobody's not saying that you'll. Nobody's not saying whatever. It, everyone admits you could have a bad trip, but you might also have a good one. And I just keep thinking a crooked and perverse generation <clears throat> seeks a sign. I think yeah, people yeah. who just want to know there's something else, it could be very alluring to to take this stuff. Yep. And I think that's a lot of it is just actually people that are scared, their lives feel unstable, they don't have any trust in institutions. I think you do have to compare it to the giant rise of the occult in the 70s. And the late sixties, you know, when like when institutional trust wanes, then people become unanchored. They become become unanchored, untethered, and they look for tethers. Mm -hmm. They look for things. Yeah, and interestingly enough, you know, things that transcend the system that is that they have depended on or been taught to depend on for stability. Right. And it is actually what's that going to be? It's going to be some kind of higher power that stands outside of. The system. Right. Right. That displaces the God of the state. So, okay, the God of the state is unstable. I can't depend on it. I've been taught to depend on the American God of the state. And all the all of our institutional stability is wavering. So maybe there's some spiritual stability I could find, some spiritual <laughs> thing that transcends it all. And it, it, we're all willing to look for it mm-hmm. anywhere but God. Right. And little do these people know that the father of lies runs the show. Mm-hmm. Like they're tapping into the same sort of hierarchy of spiritual realities that is behind an evil government. Satan's very happy to for us to live in materialistic bliss and not acknowledge any kind of spiritual reality. But you only have to hear a few stories mm-hmm. from African missionaries to realize there are other places that are tethered to some spiritual reality where he is happy to reveal himself as something benign or as something to be worshipped. And mm-hmm. I, and that's the thing about these sorts of things. It's like, guys, you have to take seriously the warning that the devil clothes himself as an angel of, of light. light. And so the most compelling lie is the one that gets nearest the truth. So the devil can tell you all kinds of true things about yourself, all kinds of true things about your past, all kinds mm-hmm. of true things about what you must do in order to be healed. So long as he can do it in such a way as to transfer your loyalty to him instead of the mm-hmm. living God, he's happy to go as far down that. If he can help you beat trauma or beat alcoholism and then go to hell, he's yay! Ha- yeah, great he's win, happy big win. That to happen. So, Return of the Dragon by Lewis on Good, good Book for a little primer or primer. I never know primer primer. Heard both. You say tomato. I say tomato. <clears throat> I say. Primer, just because I think Primer, which is probably better, sounds pretentious, and I'm a Midwestern jerk. You're a man of the people. <laughs> That's right. I'm a man of the people. It, exactly. It actually, yeah, it is Primer. But if it's like the pump that primes the fuel, that's a primer. But if it's the book, it's a primer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
Sorry, that was the wrong one. I actually that meant was awesome. It's <laughs> why you fail. All right, we'll come back with another episode on more books. Hey, if you want to tell us what to read, if you want to tell us what to talk about, then you got to pay for that privilege, buddy. You can listen for free, but you can. But we take suggestions all the time, and there are books that we have listened to and read on suggestion from any number of people on our Discord. Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. That was a recommendation. Mm -hmm. I talked about that one, for example. Right. So, well, plus, uh, except me, I just ignore what you asked me to read. Mm -hmm. Well, our Discord. But Jake doesn't. Our Discord. I read more than these guys. Uh huh. Patreon.com forward slash sound. Yeah, Patreon.com. Didn't know how to get back from it, folks. Patreon.com. <laughs> These guys always driving us, Ben and Jake, Sorry famous for driving this podcast into the weeds while Nathan tries and keeps it on track. I think that's the dynamic people are used to. <laughs> uh -huh. Patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. Don't be part of the solution. Be part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, that, really our, is that our new slogan? <laughs> that's an awesome slogan. <laughs> Sometimes I start to think ahead or think about something else and words just come out of my mouth. <laughs> I've trained myself to keep talking even when I'm not thinking because that's the, the art of podcasting. So you're a loser, loser. You're a loser, loser. Monster kill. Until next time, stay sane. Loser.